Peter chapter 3. There we go. We are continuing in our verse-by-verse study of 2 Peter, and this morning we return to our text we started last week, verses 1 through 10. This is actually going to turn into a three-part message, essentially. But let me begin this morning by reading these with you once again. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the worth and the earth and its works will be burned up. All true believers anticipate by way of the revelation of Scripture the return of Christ. But it's more than just our theology. It should also be the longing of our hearts. As believers, we long for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to one, take his own to be with him, Two, to judge the unbelieving world. And three, to establish his eternal kingdom as we are looking for, Scripture says, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of those who truly name the name of Jesus Christ, such a hope is central to our faith. But to the mockers who mock this biblical truth and scoff at such a doctrine, we find them with ridicule. And that's the subject here in Peter's third chapter. If you were with us last week, I'm sure you'll recall verse 3, which says that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now for just a moment, let's suppose that they're right. Let's suppose that Jesus never rose from the dead and therefore he's never coming back. Suppose all that Jesus was then was a great teacher, a uh, gifted rabbi. He was never God. He was just a religious man who was martyred like many religious people were. Consider what the implications, though, of that would be if that was true of Jesus Christ. Injustice would never be made right. The curse on this world would never be removed. Paradise lost but never regained. The hope of eternal life would be nothing more than a pipe dream. If this is all there is, a deteriorating wicked world growing darker and darker by the day, and there is no change to be anticipated, no transformation, no resurrection, no eternal life, no end to loss, no end to disappointments, no end to pain, no end to sickness, no end to death. If all of that is true, then sin rules, Satan wins, and the world continues on its path to its own destruction. 
And for what? What kind of cruel joke would that be? And the question is, how could anyone bear such a belief? And yet, isn't that what most people believe today? That we're all just in some random purposeless species and we're just sort of floating through the cosmos and this unguided, meaningless existence where nothing will ever be made right. After all, we're just descendants of African apes, they say. Can we really buy into the mocker's viewpoint without destroying all hope and making nonsense out of our own human existence? Well, the false teachers in Peter's day had reached the point in the heresies where they scoffed at any mention of the return of Christ or a day of reckoning. And the pinnacle of their false teaching seems to be the denial of the day of the Lord. It probably also involved the denial of his literal, physical, bodily resurrection as well. But for sure, they denied any divine intervention and return of Christ or great day of the Lord. So since Peter was writing the second epistle to deal with the false teachers, he in chapter 3 then must deal with this the culmination of their false teaching, and he begins to do so immediately in the chapter. Now, as we look at this chapter as a whole and zoom out, we could divide it up into three sections. The first nine verses focuses on the debate regarding the Lord's return and future judgment. Verse 10 affirms the great day of the Lord will come. And then verses 11 through 18 talk about the implications on our conduct. Because this is true, how ought we to live? Now, as we saw last week, the debate has two sides. Last time, we looked at the mocker's argument against the Lord's return. And this week, we're going to be focusing on Peter's response. But before we begin, let's just quickly review what their argument was. And I only want to just kind of sum it up briefly by way of reminder. Um, They articulate their first argument in verse 4 when they say, where is the promise of his coming? And here we see they essentially deny the Lord's return. Where is he? Thought you said that he would come back. Didn't you say that? And the text reveals that their argument essentially follows three forms. First, we said, is the argument from ridicule. In verse 3, it says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And that's what we see in this question. It's ridicule, it's uh, sarcasm, it's mocking, belittling, demeaning, designating the day of judgment as some anti-intellectual nonsense. And this is a ploy on the believer's emotions. And it's used on people who have been eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. Their life has been difficult. They've faced years of persecution. And as we saw in the text last week, there were a lot of people who believed Jesus would have been back for them by now, and they had become discouraged. You see this especially in the church of Thessalonica. It's almost like a Habakkuk attitude. How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? How long, O Lord, will you allow your people to suffer and you will not act? And so in their sadness... And disappointments, these false teachers come along with their sarcastic mockery of where is the promise of his coming? And then we looked at their second argument that's in the form of immorality. And this is an argument that technically they don't make for themselves, but Peter makes it for them based off their actions and their lifestyles. Notice the end of verse 3 in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Notice, following after their own lusts. Now, beloved, this is their true motive. This is their true motive. This is what's compelling their argument to adopt their false theology. You see, the reason why they deny the Lord's return is not because they can disprove it um, scripturally. The reason they deny the future return is because they love their sin. And they want uh, an eschatology that fits their immorality, to put it simply. And when the text... And when this text talks about the Lord's coming, we can see it really expressed through two different lens. 
for true believers, we long and look forward to the Lord's return because it speaks to when we'll be caught up in there and to meet the Lord in there. And so there we will always be with the Lord. Everyone says amen to that, right? But the return of Christ for the unbelieving means something completely different, doesn't it? It means the great day of the Lord. You only need one day for the great day. Believe me, you don't want to have two of them. Which, according to verse 7, is the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, the Lord's coming then means accountability as to how you've lived your life. And they don't want that accountability. They don't want any judgment to come. So, if you love your lust, what do you do? Well, you develop an eschatology that fits your immorality. And that's what we see here. And then the third argument, number three, is from a view of uniformity. Uniformity. And this is the philosophy of the false teacher that we ended with last week. And really, this is their big argument. Now they're going to get intellectual on you. And this is what they had to say in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And the heretic argument goes something like this. There can't be any cataclysmic um, judgment uh, for everything that goes on just as it always has from the beginning. And therefore, it's impossible for there to be any kind of a, a divine intervention, any kind of a judgment. Things have always been the same going all the way back, back, back to the beginning of creation. And... This is referred to as the doctrine of uniformity, which categorically denies any sort of divine intervention throughout world history. And they would oppose biblical truths such as when God unleashed a worldwide flood or, say, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uniformists say nothing ever changes. It's all just the slow, continual, gradual, unchanging process. There's never been a judgment. Therefore, there will never be a judgment there aren't any miracles. It's all just continual, natural process of cause and effect. So that was the false teacher's arguments against the day of the Lord. They present an emotional argument, a moral argument, and then you have an intellectual, an intellectual argument or, or a philosophy. And of course, in order to believe in these arguments, you have to totally reject the Bible, which they do. They did back then and false teachers do today. But now let's look at Peter's argument for the Lord's return. We've seen the scoffers' arguments against it. Now let's see the arguments for it as Peter responds. But before we begin in verse 1, notice the conclusion of Peter's argument. We'll just jump to the conclusion so that you kind of have a lens to look through with what Peter's talking about right there in the beginning of verse 10. He writes, but the day of the Lord will come. And you can stop right there. That's a summation. It's going to happen. You can ridicule it. Uh, you can mock it. You can try to explain it away. You can even try to change the meaning of Scripture as you try to spiritualize this whole thing. But let me be as clear as I possibly can. The day of the Lord is going to come no matter what you believe. <laughs> so my prayer, beloved, is you believe God's word. So when this whole thing ends, you're on his side. All right, let's get into this. You guys ready? You're going to have to strap on here. This is going to be, uh, we're going to get tested. Uh, Peter's going to give us several arguments. Argument number one is an argument from Scripture. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is first going to say, let's look at Scripture and find out what it says. This is found in verses 1 and 2. But notice verse 1. Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, when Peter indicates this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, he's pointing out he also wrote his previous letter to the same audience. All right, both first and second Peter were written to God's elect exiles. You can read about that. And refresh your memory from when we went through 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Who were scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It also indicates that there was a small time period between letter number 1 and letter number 2. 
We also see the pastoral heart of Peter here as he uses the word beloved for those whom God has given for him to care for. The church is the dearly beloved of God. You're the beloved of God. And then he says, I'm, I'm writing you in order to stir up, in order to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What does he mean, I am stirring up? Well, this is all one word in the Greek, and it means to wake you up out of a sleep, to arouse you, to alert you. To alert you to what? Well, to the satanic lies of these false teachers. He's saying, I want to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I've told you these things before in the past, but you need reminding. We all need reminding of the same old great truths. We don't need new things that aren't true. The, the old truths are just perfect for us to redo and, and remind ourselves of them and, and just to rest in their, the truths are fantastic. We don't need to always go looking for this new thing. So many people are looking for this new thing and they're going away from the, the true old thing, the original thing, the nothing like it thing. But he says, I, I, I need to remind you to, to stay on guard, to stay awake, beloved. I know what you're all going through. This isn't easy. And Peter did know. Peter surely know. He's likely already in prison when he's writing this letter. Remember back in chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, he said, I consider it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up. Same thing, by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And Jesus did. He told Peter back in John chapter 21, the final chapter of John's gospel. When you get older, they will stretch out your hands and someone else will bring you where you do not wish to go. And John adds in that text, Jesus said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. He was talking about that he would be crucified. And so Peter knew firsthand the hardships of being a follower of Christ in the first century. And then would you also... Please notice that little phrase, your sincere mind, for just a moment. That phrase tells us that Peter believed his readers were genuine believers. All right, the word sincere means pure, uncontaminated, unmixed by the seductive influences of the world and of the flesh. And the word mind refers to one's understanding and, and thinking, a renewed mind. So what Peter is saying is because you're genuine believers, you have a pure mind, a, a sincere mind for spiritual discernment. And I, and I want to stir that spiritual discernment up, that redeemed mind up, so that you'll be able to identify and understand when you come across false doctrine, so that you can give a proper rebuttal to it and not be tempted to be carried away. When these false teachers come along and and they attack God's word and attempt to plant seeds of doubt concerning the day of the Lord, I want you to meet that attack head on. And so he says, I'm stirring you up. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, what does he want to remind them of? Verse 2, here's what you need to remember. You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Let's stop right there for a moment. That's a reference to the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. Peter is saying, you need to go back and be refreshed in your Old Testament. All right? And why does Peter say that? Well, because the Old Testament prophets continually warned the people of God of the great day of the Lord. If you go back into the Old Testament and read the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, you'll read about catastrophic judgment like this world has never before seen a terrifying passage by one of the prophets and it's found in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 which reads near is the great day of the Lord near and coming very quickly the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter in it the warrior cries out a day of wrath is that day a day of trouble and distress a day of destruction and desolation a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities 
and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And then notice, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Terrifying, isn't it? Whoa. And yet, these false teachers, these mockers sat there and said, huh, where's the promise of his coming? Where is he? No, I don't see him around anywhere. There's not going to be any judgment. You can live however you want to live. Stop being so uptight. Loosen up. We might as well have a good time while we're here. And for these false teachers, grace was nothing but a word that meant freedom to do whatever their lust desired. Even though prophecies like these are all throughout the Old Testament text, warning of a great day of judgment for the wicked. In fact, if we had time, we could spend an entire Sunday looking at all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the day of the Lord. But unfortunately, we don't have all day, so let me just show you a couple more examples of this before we move on. How about we look at the prophet Isaiah? He was a man who certainly feared the Lord. And what did Isaiah have to say about this coming judgment? Well, if you were to look at Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 13, you would read in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And it goes on and on, but you get the idea. The day of the Lord will be cruel. It will be full of God's fury, burning with His righteous anger. He will destroy the land. He will exterminate its sinners from it. We're talking about a scale of destruction this world has never seen before. Another warning from the prophet Isaiah is in chapter 24. Starting in verse 18. He talks about the foundations of the earth will begin to shake. In verses 19 and 20, the earth begins to split in pieces. It reels to and fro like a drunkard for its transgressions. It's heavy upon it. And it will fall never to rise again, verse 21. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, speaking of the fallen angels, and the kings of the earth below. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And you can go on and on. Isaiah 30, Isaiah 34, 51, 64, 66. Right through all the major and minor prophets, nearly all of them have repeated prophetic warnings looking ahead to the great day of the Lord. And in case you might be thinking, well, this is just a picture into our own catastrophic nuclear destruction. Well, Droll says in chapter 1, verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from who? From the Almighty. So, cataclysmic judgment of fire is coming. It's coming, says the Old Testament. So where do we go then to argue for the day of the Lord? We, where do we go then to argue for the judgment of God at the end? Where do we go? First of all, to the holy prophets in the Old Testament. It's everywhere in there. But that's not all. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and see what else he says. He says in verse 2 that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And here he's referring to the New Testament, the words spoken by the Lord and Savior and the apostles whom he commissioned through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And essentially what Peter is saying here is study the apostles who wrote the commandments of Christ in your New Testament. 
Now, like the Old Testament, the New Testament is also packed with descriptions of the Lord's return. Just to give you an idea of how often the New Testament speaks of the Lord's return, there's 27 books in your New Testament. 23 of the 27 refer explicitly to the Lord's return. And of those four who don't explicitly speak of it, three of them are only one chapter long. Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John. Further, there are a total of 260 chapters in the New Testament with approximately 300 references to the Lord's return. The New Testament is filled with warnings about the coming judgment, information about the Lord's coming to gathering his own, teaching about the fact that he will judge the wicked, establish his kingdom, and bring in eternal righteousness. One of the great texts in the New Testament is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 16. Revelation, chapter 19, 11 through 16. And I want to read this to you. This is where the Apostle John gets a glimpse into the future return of Christ. Just a wonderful set of verses. He writes in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, this is you, beloved, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horses, giddy up. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fiercest wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. So Peter's first argument is an argument from Scripture, bearing witness to the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the mockers may mark, uh, Peter says, uh, go to your Old Testament, go to your New Testament. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And if you study the Scriptures, you will certainly find the assurance you need there. So that's argument number one. He says, go to the scriptures. Argument number two for the day of the Lord is the argument from history. History. And I love this section. I had so much fun studying for this section. This is the argument from history. Now, in verses three and four, which we studied last week, they say all continues on just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's where we were ending last week on. And in verse five, Peter says, for when they maintain this, this what? This view of uniformity, this view that everything just keeps going on as it always has. There's no catastrophic judgments by God, no divine interventions by him. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. See in verse 5 where it says it escapes their notice? The Greek actually says they shut their eyes to the facts. They shut their eyes to the facts. I like how the old King James translates this. It says they are willingly ignorant of it. It is a deliberate ignorance, a deliberate forgetfulness. Why? Because they love their sin. They love their lust. They don't, they don't desire truth. So they develop a system that says he won't, and that leads them to evolutionary uniformity. But you know something, they have to shut their eyes to two great historic cataclysmic events that totally disprove uniformity and from that evolution. You say, well, what are those? What do they shut their eyes to? First of all, creation. Creation. And you remember we saw this in the book of Acts as when Paul went and witnessed to the pagans he didn't go to the scriptures that they denied. He brought them to creation. The God, the unknown God, Paul says, I know that God. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. And so this will be the first sign is creation that God came and intervened into the land in a, in a catastrophic way, let me state. 
He says they willingly shut their eyes to the fact that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And what he is saying is creation was a cataclysmic invasion by God. Creation was, was God stepping into time, into the world, not by uniformity and all these millions and billions of years, back, 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 the scientific impossibility that everything came from nothing. I mean, just ridiculous. No, there was a cataclysmic, instantaneous, explosive creation. Everything hasn't always gone on the same as it always has, as they claim, slowly evolving after billions and billions and billions of years. Not at all. By the word of God, the creating, controlling, um, preserving power of God, creation came and he spoke and he created. Now, of course, this is diametrically opposed to the false teachers who don't want God, who's involved, who's going to judge their sin. And so if they believe in God and they claim that they did since they were again, these were false teachers within the church. So they claim to believe in God, but they create a God in their own image who really isn't involved. He just kind of left the whole thing behind and said, good luck to you, I'll just see you all in heaven. Now Peter says something really interesting here in verse 5. He says, the escapes are notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. So follow me here on this. Long ago, there were the heavens, right? The heavens. And these heavens did not exist by evolution. They existed, he says, by the word of God. See that there? By the word of God. God spoke them into existence. And then he makes a, a fascinating statement. And he says, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Did you know that? Did you know the earth was formed out of water and by water? You say, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that the earth was some kind of a, a watery chaos at first. Now, in order for us to understand this, you're going to have to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 because we've got to go back there and see how this whole thing went down. And, and I think you'll really be excited to see this. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and... and We'll see what happened. That's this chapter 1, verse 1. It starts off pretty simple in the beginning. God. Right? It doesn't start off by saying, uh, let me tell you all these things to state that, that God is true and, and how he came about. And uh, No, it just says, yeah, God was always there. God was there. And in the beginning, God was there. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And isn't that what Peter just said? He said, God spoke the heavens into existence and the earth was formed out of some watery mass. And now Genesis 1 is going to tell us all about it. Listen to what it says. So God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was at first tohu and bohu, two, two Hebrew words which mean formless and empty. So a sort of uh, chaotic... Um, mass of water and so so try to picture this imagine this there's this chaotic formless mass of water which is the earth at this point and it's just floating in the heavens in in space the heavens were was out of space for in verse 2 it says darkness was over the surface of the deep isn't our god amazing i mean this is really incredible notice all of a sudden, God does something. Look again there at verse 2. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, we find out two times this formless water got surface, surface twice in verse 2, over the surface of the deep, was moving over the surface of the waters. It isn't just a watery mass, it now has surface. If I got a surface, it's been pulled into a shape, and God pulled it into a sphere. You have in verse 2 the creation, I think, of gravity. Gravity. It holds 
in the shape of a sphere. In fact, you might have noticed a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Rick was uh, teaching through Proverbs 8. He didn't get into this part, but it caught my eye. Down in verse 27, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ who was there at creation, because of course he's God, says in Proverbs 8, verse 27, he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. It was this formless mass, and he made a circle as he used gravity to stretch the waters into the circle called earth. Then in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. There wasn't any stars, there wasn't any sun yet. There wasn't any moon, there just was light. And all of the rays that are out in space that go across the whole spectrum of light were created. And in verse 4, God separated the light from the darkness. And in verses 4 through 5, we see time, I think, created in which the division of day and night now represents one day. And then in verse 6, he turns back to the earth. And, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Now this is getting at what our text in 2 Peter is talking about. God says, I want to do something. I want to take some of the water from, from this watery mass that I just created and I want to pull some of it up here into the heavens, into space here. And, and I want to leave some down here in the sphere, and I want to create this expanse in between the two. And so what you end up with is this water-like canopy surrounding the earth. Okay? And this describes the heavens from long ago. Remember that terminology. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven, but it, he wasn't done. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. <laughs> dry land appeared. God speaks, dry land is injected into this watery mass and all of a sudden mountains begin to rise up and and the water gets collected in all the lakes and in the ravines and the rivers and the seas are created from this mass of land that comes up. And suddenly the earth is beginning to t take shape. And, and there you have it. He took the tohu and bohu and, and gave it shape. He pulled some of the water up and surrounded the whole globe with this canopy. He left an expanse of space in between the, the canopy and the surface of the earth then he injected land into it. He moved into all different kinds of altitudes and caused the waters to rush in these great valleys and separate the sea from the land. And you know what God said about it? He said at the end of verse 10 that it was what? Good. Good. It was better than good, beloved. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. It was the perfect place for man to live. It was the perfect greenhouse environment. That water canopy protected the earth. Man lived in that world for a very, very long time. How perfect was it, you ask? Well, next time you're looking for some time to, to read, look through Genesis chapter 5. Even after the fall, the average length of a person's life was over 900 years. Okay? Why, you ask? Well, because it was the perfect condition for life. The canopy covered the earth. The waters in this marvelous canopy filtered out the ultraviolet rays of the sun. Uh, it beautifully watered the earth with, with dew, it said. It never had to rain. It, just, it was this greenhouse perfection. It was this perfect environment, and people lived for a very long, long time. Dinosaurs. There were dinosaurs, big ones. But even in that perfect environment created by God, man fell into sin. Man fell. And God looked at the world. You fast forward just a short time later. Now we're in Genesis chapter 6, 
Verse 5, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth. And he was sorry that he made the whole thing. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy it. I'm going to destroy it. How's he going to destroy it? Well, he's going to use the same thing that he created it from. Water. Water. Return to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says this in verse 5. Maybe all this makes a little more sense to you now. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Did you catch that, beloved? God destroyed the world with the water that surrounded it. God built into his creation the tool of its destruction. Would you also please notice what Peter says in verse 6, through which the world at that time, there's that term I told you about a little while ago, was destroyed. Notice he doesn't say the earth was destroyed because he's primarily pointing out the, the old world order of things. Yes, the world was, was partially destroyed physically by the flood, certainly, but he's not just talking about the dirt. He, he's talking about the old order of creation, the perfect created order with, you know, that canopy that we saw of water in the heavens above the earth because that was all destroyed and used for the flood. Now, how did he do it? Well, there was so much water everywhere with this creation he did. It really wouldn't have been very hard at all. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11. Oh, did I miss it or skip it? I guess I didn't put it in there. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, how about that? On the same day... All of the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. God broke that canopy of water above the earth as the floodgates opened and then he describes all on the same day the, the fountains of the great deep just burst open. That's all the water that was in the ground, all the springs and the fountains of the earth just burst opened and roaring out of the center of the earth was an unimaginable amount of water. Genesis 7:22 tells us that all that was on the dry land in those nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Verse 23, thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. So this was the judgment as the world at that time was destroyed. You can't say that all things just continue as they always have all the way back from the very beginning of time. Are you kidding me? No, they, they have not. <laughs> We're not into uniformitarian evolution. God created all of it in six days, and then in a moment in time, God destroyed it all. And the false teachers willingly ignore the flood. They are revisionist historians. They make up their own history without divine intervention so they can live the way that they want to live according to their lusts. Things have not continued as they have always been. There was a devastating, catastrophic judgment upon the whole world and there will be again in the future. Notice verse 7 as Peter continues. He writes, but by his word, the present heavens and earth, and here Peter points out that the heavens and earth are now different than the ones long ago. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? Fire, not water. Remember the rainbow? What did the rainbow signify? That God would never destroy the world again by water. So this time it's being reserved for fire, kept for the judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The present world system then is reserved for future judgment, and that future judgment will come by the spoken word of God. He is the creator. He is also the destroyer. Only next time he'll do it 
by fire. And when you read about the future judgment of the world, you very often read about fire, don't you? I think again from the great prophet Isaiah who has so much to say about judgment as he instructs us. For example, right there in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15 says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And then quickly, just one passage from the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. Paul writes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who, number one, do not know God, and on those who, number two, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think his warning's quite clear. The next time the Lord comes to judge, he's coming with fire. So whether it's fireballs out of the sky, whether it's some unbelievable break of an atom and this nuclear catastrophic reaction that destroys the entire universe, or whether it's fire from inside the earth, lava, his judgment is going to be with fire. With fire. Might be all the above. Now, before we uh, move on, did you also notice what it says there at the end of verse 7? He says, this fire is being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now that word ungodly is nice to see there, isn't it? <laughs> it is only the ungodly who will face the fiery day of the Lord. It says in Malachi chapter 3, 16 through 18 that God has a book called the Book of Remembrance. And he writes the name of those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. For they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, for they are my own possession. So when it comes in judgment by fire, it will be for the ungodly, not his own. All right, there's one other argument I need to give you, and we'll finish next week with, uh, well, I guess I'll introduce the last two as well to you. This is the argument from eternity. We've seen the argument from Scripture, the argument from history, and quickly the argument from eternity. Verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. There he's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. And what's he saying? Well, it sounds like somebody listened to these false teachers, and now they're sort of questioning if the Lord's ever going to come. And Peter says, why don't you look at it from God's point of view, from God's side for a moment? From your viewpoint, it looks like a long time. From his viewpoint, it's been two days. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. In fact, that God looks at time differently than, than we do, right? And that's the argument from eternity. You, you can't confine God to your schedule. He says, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And what he's indicating is there's some of these Christians who have been sucked in likely to the false teacher's reproach that God is somehow indifferent or that he's forgotten about us. And so he says, look, while you're looking at it one way, God is certainly looking at it in a totally different view. And then there's something else connected to that verse that's really so rich and so helpful, but we're going to have to push that off until next week and in the next section um, because it, it ties into the passage. But let me give you that, that last argument there as well. And we'll just kind of introduce this and we'll be going through all these next week. It's an argument from the character of God. The character of God. Verse 9, this is uh, a wonderful, wonderful verse. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Isn't that awesome? Do you know why there's a delay in this coming? It's not because the Lord is slow about his coming. It's not because he's not keeping his promise. It's not because he's unfaithful to his word. It's not because he's indifferent. or It's not because he's become too busy with something else. The reason why he's delaying is because he's patient toward you, not wishing for any of his own to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. He is patient for people to repent. Do you see that? He's long-suffering. See, if the Lord had returned for his own 15 years ago, how many of you would be in hell? Raise up your hand. Raise up your hand and look around. Look around at everyone. Praise be to God, he did not return 15 years ago. I'd be facing a fiery judgment. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, when Peter wrote about the patience of God in the days of Noah? Remember that when we looked through that? How long did it take for Noah to build the ark? 120 years? 120 years. Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And the whole time he preached righteousness to a dying world, even then, God was incredibly patient, waited 120 years, even though he knew no one else was getting in that ark. But he waited 120 years. So believers and unbelievers alike can look back when you tell that story. You know how patient God is? He waited around for 120 years, gave him a preacher, and they just mocked him the entire time until they were wiped out by the flood. 2 Peter chapter 3, down in verse 15, see what it says there? The patience of our Lord. It leads to salvation. The patience of our Lord leads to salvation. There's so much more to say, and Lord willing, we can say all of it next time. But let me just close by saying, you know, on one side of the cone, we're like the Apostle John, right? Lord, come quickly. Lord, come, come quickly. I'm ready. But beloved, let us also understand we serve a God who is rich in mercy. And he's in the business of raising dead people to eternal life. All right? So let us not take our expectation for the Lord's return and forget about a God who is long-suffering, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you need prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward today, or certainly we can stay after service with you and pray. I want to invite you all to please stand as we praise our Lord. Is he worthy? Oh, yes, he is.